So I like to say we don't all have to do everything, but we all have to do something. Hey, Baltimore. Jen Ayosa is the executive director of Blue Water Baltimore and today's guest. In this episode, we chat about her life as an environmental advocate, the state of the Chesapeake watershed, and the ways that Blue Water Baltimore and other similar agencies around the country are working to counteract the effects of the current administration. We also talk about littering. Please stop littering. But first, we discuss her career, which started at the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. You were, you worked for Chesapeake Bay Foundation. I did, yes. Yeah. So I joined CBF probably in 98 um, as a staff scientist, and I worked there all told probably about 12 years. Uh, I took a little sabbatical for about two years, and I worked for the University of Maryland Cooperative Extension. Okay. And then I came back. So you and my husband have two things in common. He worked for CBF and went to University of Maryland. Oh, very nice. Yeah. Very nice. Now, what does he do for CBF? Well, he did. Okay. No, no. Did. In college. he they would, It was very weird. They'd send him to an island and he would... He was on the crew. He was on the crew. <laughs> yeah. And somehow he'd end up with like a case of beer and some food and then they'd come pick him up. So I don't... Yeah. He was probably doing work at some of our island education centers. So Like hacking stuff back. Oh, yeah, and probably cleaning up and, and uh, cutting back invasive vegetation. So the Bay Foundation has a couple of island sites, and, you know, they're older. And when they don't have students there, that's when they have to do the maintenance or, you know, bring in supplies or things like that. So yeah. every summer they have a crew, usually of young men who can lift heavy things and, yeah. Sounds like that's exactly what he did. <laughs> he loved it. Yeah. I mean, he, it seems like a good gig. Oh, yeah. No, it was an awesome place to work. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. How did you end up at CVF? Yeah. So I went to graduate school at University of Virginia to study environmental science. And I did all of my research on the eastern shore of Virginia, um, studying biochemistry of the salt marshes. Um, but I knew pretty quickly in my graduate career, I did not want to go into academia. I didn't want to be a researcher. And so as I was thinking about leaving grad school, I saw one of those signs posted on the bulletin board outside the dean's office that has the little cut pieces at the end. <laughs> the original the Facebook. <laughs> yes, the original <laughs> Facebook back in 1995. And I pulled one of those things to get more information on a fellowship that would put people with marine science and marine policy degrees working in the policy arena in D.C., so I applied for the fellowship. I got it, and I got mutually matched with a congressman from Maryland whose big passion was the Chesapeake Bay. And so that was something that I really gravitated toward. And through that fellowship, which I guess I worked for him for about 18 months, I met a whole bunch of folks working in agencies in the nonprofit sector in Maryland, and it was one of those connections um, that kind of came back after the fellowship was long over. I was working for the State Department of Natural Resources, and one of the fellows from CBF called me and said, hey, we have this job opening, and we thought of you. Would you be interested? And I said, are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that's, that's already like a dream come true kind of job. Uh, I was pretty young at the time, but I applied for it, and I got the job, and yeah, the rest was history. And so that's how, when you moved to Baltimore? Or for, to Maryland? No. Well, oh. I was actually already – yeah, I guess that's when I moved to Maryland because at the time I was living in D.C. Um, and you're from South Carolina. I grew up in South Carolina, yes. yeah. Now, most folks might say, hey, you don't sound like you're from South Carolina. I wasn't born there, uh, but I like to say my formative years were spent there. And after college, I kind of ran like hell, and Maryland has become home. Yeah. So I've been in Maryland for 22 years. We'll take you. We'll yep. consider you official. Yep. Well, I married a local boy from Hartford County, so we're not going anywhere. <laughs> uh -huh. Do you live up there? No, we yeah. actually live in the city. Um, I spent my first 16-plus years in the city um, over in Fells Point. And then maybe not quite a year and a half ago, we moved up to uh, the Laurelville area. Oh, it's great there. Yeah, so yeah. we bought a little single-family home. I now know where my car is parked, which was <laughs> the main reason why I wanted to move. And, uh, yeah, I love the city. I um, yeah, it seems really weird that somebody from South Carolina would find such a home, you know, in Baltimore, but I absolutely love it, and I couldn't see you live in any place else. Oh, well, we like to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. So Blue Water Baltimore is now your baby. Now my baby, yeah. yeah. Um, how did that come to be, and what do you do specifically? Because I, 
my understanding is is just this incredibly broad <laughs> spectrum of things and 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 responsibility that you take on but please tell me what you actually do sure so i am currently the executive director of blue water baltimore so i'm going to step back about 8 years to kind of give you a perspective on who blue water baltimore is and where we came from we are only eight years old. We formed in 2010 through the merger of five really small environmental watershed groups. Um, so there was a Gwens Falls Watershed Association, Jones Falls Herring Run Watershed Association. There was a watershed group on the Baltimore Harbor, and there was a Baltimore Harbor Waterkeeper Program. Okay, what was that transition like? Because that we were recently in Amsterdam, and they and they pulled all these city entities together, and yeah. it took like. 12 years for it to normalize. Was it was it difficult or did, was it a smooth process? Well, for me, it was great because I wasn't really involved at that time. Oh, okay, um, okay. I will say that the, the boards from those five groups uh, seem to have figured it out because they created sort of a merged board that worked for about a year as a merged board where they tried to figure out all of the mechanics. You know, how do you bring together five sets of bylaws or five budgets? Some of the groups had staff. Some of the groups did not have staff. Some of the organizations had real physical assets like a building or uh, the Herring Run Native Plant Nursery. Not to mention each of the groups brought with them, you know, a signature program or, you know, something that they felt really attached to. So the the board and the combined staff worked, I'd say, for more than a year to really make sense of all that before launching Blue Water as this new sort of merged group. Now, I learned, I guess I was living in the, in the city at the time, so I sort of knew that was happening. Mm-hmm. I worked at CBF at the time, but I really wasn't involved. But I was sort of watching because I thought, this is smart. You know, I'm nothing if not a pragmatist. And so I kind of thought, gosh, this is really pragmatic. Maybe some strength in numbers. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, Maryland, Maryland has quite a few environmental organizations. And sometimes they're great at working together. And sometimes it's a little bit tough. And we end up competing with one another. And so here you had five groups arguably working in a very overlapping geography sort of putting aside that competition and saying, look, we want to figure out how to leverage each other's strengths and be stronger than the sum of our parts. So I think that was still, at the time, a really interesting concept. Um, it's still, I mean, it's it's a practice in, in putting hubris aside and Oh, and, it, and it making something is. better. Yeah. yeah. Now, I will say um, we are starting to see a little bit more of it. Um, so one of our sort of fellow uh, – we're, we're part of the International Waterkeeper Alliance. We have a waterkeeper. There are quite a few waterkeepers around uh, the state of Maryland and in the Chesapeake Bay. What is a waterkeeper? Good question. So a waterkeeper is essentially an organization that serves as sort of the eyes and ears for a particular water body. Um, so it was created, the, the idea of a waterkeeper was created, gosh, I don't know how many decades ago, in the Hudson River Valley, because folks felt like there needed to be somebody who cared about the river, who wanted to see the health of that river being maintained, despite what sort of development pressures or pressures from industry might be um, looking to upend water quality or or do things that weren't good for the waterway. So now we have, gosh, over 300 water keepers across the globe um, in Baltimore Harbor or in Baltimore. Ours is called the Baltimore Harbor Waterkeeper. So we have a boat and we patrol the Patapsco River. We look for maybe industrial facilities that aren't. So you, Blue Water Baltimore, is the waterkeeper. Yes. Uh, I was imagining it being some like charming fisherman. Okay, no, it's it's you know an it, it absolutely okay. could be. Okay. Yeah. But so, you but you are in the best interest of the waterway. So, absolutely. Yes. Okay, and gotcha. So we like to say we uh, we are. We're working on behalf of that waterway. We're looking at permits. We're looking at maybe action by an individual, by a local government, 
to try and figure out what is going to be problematic. You know, too much pollution coming into the waterway isn't good. So we might fight, fight back against a permit. Um, last year, we found um, uh, an industrial facility that was blatantly non-compliant with their permit, which means they kept spewing more pollution into the Patapsco River than their permit allowed, and they were doing it because they could. May I ask, and I don't even want to like say his name in this room, but as Trump has sort of let things go, is, is do people feel more entitled to um, uh, <laughs> not pay attention to what they're supposed to be doing? Um, I would say I'm sure that's happening in in a lot of places. The biggest thing that we have felt in this region, and when I say region, I mean sort of the whole Chesapeake Bay region, I think because of what's going on at the federal level, is uh, that we've, we're seeing a rollback of sort of the foundational federal laws and regulations that really serve as the underpinning for pretty much everything we do at a state and local level. So the environmental community sort of across the, the board in the United States has been working under the Federal Clean Water Act for you know a few decades. And that really provides the foundation for a lot of what we do in terms of working to make our waterways what we call fishable, swimmable, and drinkable. Those are the three promises under the Federal Clean Water Act that says, you know, residents of the United States are entitled to those things. So to see the current administration either look to roll back some of the regulations under the Clean Water Act or reduce and attempt to eliminate funding for some of those key programs – You know, in the past two years, the president's budget has sought to zero out the federal Chesapeake Bay program, which is really, I mean, it is the model for cooperative, large-scale restoration um, in this country. We have six states. We have, I, I don't even know how many local governments, state and federal agencies, nonprofits working collaboratively all toward the same goal of improving the health of the Chesapeake Bay. And so much of what that program is doing, again, is really founded in the Federal Clean Water Act. And unfortunately, this administration is trying to defund it, you know, roll back some of those protections. So it's really, really frustrating. Um, Now, on the other hand, it also tends to get folks very motivated to step up and to demand action at the state and local level. So luckily, we live in Maryland, which is about as progressive as it gets. Um, We have state laws and state funding sources and local governments that went above and beyond the federal Clean Water Act, you know, years ago. Now, it doesn't mean that we can sit on those laurels because we still need the federal funding. We still need the federal cooperation. We still need the ties that that bind the states to one another. And so all of that really comes from the federal underpinning. So, yeah, it's um, it's an interesting time to work in the environmental arena, oh my God. to say the least. It's also an interesting time to like, live on Earth where it's like, I live here too. Please yeah. don't pollute it well, in this egregious way. Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah, and that's um, – I think that might be one of the toughest things, um, especially when things are going well, to try to convey to folks that, you know, um, we might have poor air quality here in the city because we have so many people in a relatively small area or we have really old infrastructure under our streets. And so we will see after big rainstorms um, discharges of untreated – human sewage. That's not normal. That should not be happening in 2018. Um, And sometimes I think it gets, um, it's a little, it's a little discouraging when um, folks don't think twice about some of these, some of these kinds of things that we see. And so I think one of the roles of Blue Water Baltimore is to really engage with residents, with community groups, with neighborhoods, you name it, to really convey that there are alternative ways to do things that can be more protective, 
not just about not just of the river or the stream, but that can also have outcomes that are that are better for human health. You know, so if we restore our tree canopy in Baltimore City, and that's just basically how many trees, how many you know square feet are covered by trees. That's not just good for the birds or the bugs that want to live in those trees. There is scientific research that shows that tree cover can reduce surface temperatures, especially when you have a lot of pavement, which tends to hold heat. It can improve health outcomes um, with things like asthma or other respiratory um, illness. Trees can actually improve um, neighborhood quality and um, the the value of homes. I was because, that was one of my questions next, yeah. Yeah, you know, if you've got trees, if you've got beautiful vegetation, that is something that's more desirable to somebody who may be looking for a home. So there's lots of reasons why you would want to replant trees. Mm-hmm. But in Baltimore, I think some of our neighbors um, have gone for so long without trees in the tree pits in front of their homes or without regular contact to a park that has a lot of trees that they don't think of that as a good thing, they might see it as a nuisance. They might see it as something like, oh, well, the tree is just going to drop its leaves and then I have to clean that up. Or the tree might create a safety concern. Somebody could hide behind that tree in the shadows and you know sneak up on me when I'm coming home from work. And so we work with a variety of folks who might have some misconceptions that all trees are not created equally, mm-hmm. but that there's also a lot of benefits that come along with some of these, you know, environmental improvements that really are about quality of life improvements, maybe just as much, if not more, than their positive impact on the environment. Mm-hmm. So would you recommend, I mean, if, if you're in a neighborhood and you want trees, do they reach out to you or can you write to your councilman? I mean, how would you affect that change? So that's an excellent question. And there's the good news is there's a couple different ways that folks could go about it. So we work, Blue Water Baltimore works in partnership with other folks who also want to increase trees in the city. So we work really closely with the City Department of Recreation and Parks, their forestry division, um, under a collaboration called Tree Baltimore, where the city actually grows trees that they want to give away to neighborhood groups or nonprofit groups like Blue Water so that they can get planted. So just so there, there's a parcel of free trees waiting for homes? Um, uh, yeah, for the most part. I mean, you know, or, or they will take delivery of trees from um, third-party providers. So, but they're, yes, um, for the most part. So, for example, um, I, I used to live near Patterson Park. I'm a longtime volunteer, the Friends of Patterson Park a great, very small organization that really stewards this amazing little park in East Baltimore. This past Saturday, Tree Baltimore, the city of Baltimore, delivered 53 trees to the Friends of Patterson Park. The Friends of Patterson Park got a bunch of volunteers out there, and we planted those trees. Then the Friends will maintain those trees over over time, and they'll add to canopy in that particular park. So folks can reach out to us. They can reach out to City Forestry. They can reach out to their their local park group. There's a lot of friends of park groups. Uh, another organization we work with is the Baltimore Tree Trust. So when it comes to when when you're talking about trees, there's actually quite a few folks that are working toward getting more trees into public spaces, and then also getting trees into you know private homeowners, private landowners' properties. So we'll work with the Department of Natural Resources to actually give away trees to folks who can plant them on their on their property. Um, we work with the county Department of Environmental Protection to get trees into schoolyards or you know church um, uh, churchyards. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of folks that I think are really starting to see the need for more trees in an urban environment. And to have a resource like that is incredible. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think what's really incredible is that very few folks disagree that we want more trees. Um, and I think that a lot of folks see that as a real worthwhile um, expenditure of time and resources. So that's a good thing. So I'm assuming that more trees positively affect the bay, right? 
That's yes. Okay. That's the long term. And, and how's and I I feel like I understand how maybe it's like the root system anchors the soil. Is that part of it? So that's part of it. Okay. Yeah. So depending on where the tree is planted, you can get a whole variety of benefits. So what what most folks will talk about with regard to water quality, which is what blue water is all about. We want to see trees, you know, close to our streams, our waterways. Because the roots of trees can help hold the banks in place. Um, They also kind of provide the last line of defense, if you will, between what kind of pollution might be running off the land um, into or toward the stream. So the plants will take up that water. They'll also take up nutrients that are in the water. Um, And in some cases, they may take up other pollutants, Um, in small quantities. And so anything that they take up doesn't go into the stream. So they're absorbing our air pollution and our water pollution. Well, so that's another mechanism, yeah. They take a beating. (laughs) They they absolutely do take a beating. And to think about what we put some of our trees through in an urban environment, um, it is is kind of astounding the the amount of services that they provide for us. Homes for birds and squirrels, I mean. (laughs) Absolutely. But, you know, trees take um, carbon dioxide out of the air. So that is a greenhouse gas. Um, And they turn it basically into oxygen, which is what they put back out, Um, in addition to providing shade and cooling benefit. I mean, so it it really is pretty amazing. Um, And when you look at the benefits and sort of the costs, it's actually a very cost-effective pollution reduction strategy. So across the Chesapeake Bay, you are seeing – plans, you know, at the state level and at the county level to really focus on increasing trees, especially along our waterways. So beyond um, trees, Mm -hmm. how can a person who lives in the city make a change? I mean, if things are sort of crumbling above us and the ground below us needs help, I mean, what, what can you do just as a person who lives in a neighborhood in the city? You know, I get asked that question a lot, and I really think that one of the most important things that people who live and work in the city can do is get informed and then get engaged. So I like to say we don't all have to do everything, but we all have to do something. Um, and so there are there are any number of ways that folks can get informed. You know, there are public meetings you know, probably every other every other week um, that talk about how, you know, budgets are being used. Um, we have a lot of folks that, unfortunately, four years ago, really politicized what was then called the stormwater utility fee. Um, folks started calling it the rain tax. And that is one of the most unfortunate um, sort of politically motivated monikers that I think I've ever heard of because the stormwater utility fee was essentially a requirement that our 10 biggest jurisdictions in the state of Maryland actually start raising money to address what we call stormwater pollution in our urban environment. So the 10 biggest jurisdictions know, you know, this shouldn't surprise anyone, were folks like Montgomery County, Prince George's County, Baltimore City, Baltimore County, where the population lives and where we have lots of roads and lots of buildings and lots of sidewalks that don't let rainwater infiltrate into the ground. And so when most of our cities um, and neighborhoods were developed, that water was basically shunted as quickly as possible into the nearest stream. Or if it wasn't close to the stream, it was funneled into a pipe that was then shunted directly to the stream. And so it it wasn't until, I don't know, maybe the 80s when we started requiring a little more from new development in terms of treating that stormwater or at least keeping it on site so that it wouldn't become a hazard. So here we are, 2018. Um, If you look at what's happening across the Chesapeake Bay watershed, you've got a lot of work that's cleaning up wastewater treatment facilities, a lot of effort going into cleaning up farm pollution. We're even doing a better job at trying to reduce air pollution. 
But our stormwater pollution from our, our city centers and our population centers has been lagging pretty far behind. And this is a major contributor to Ellicott City's issues, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. This is a major contributor to what we see, unfortunately, every time it rains here in Baltimore. And we see mounds of trash ending up in the Inner Harbor. Or we hear about flooding in southwest Baltimore. Or we hear about what the city calls a, a sanitary sewer overflow That's basically our pipe network being overwhelmed because of stormwater and because the pipes are really old. Um, But it's introducing a lot of pollution into our waterways. So back to, you know, four or five years ago, the state imposed this requirement on these big jurisdictions to actually start putting money toward stormwater improvements. Unfortunately, it was politicized. Uh, It got the horrible moniker of rain tax. um, And the the law was modified so that it was no longer mandatory. Now, thankfully, Baltimore City, in my view, did the right thing by saying, you know what, we recognize we've got a challenge and we need this stormwater utility and then some. (laughs) Um, the amount of money that Baltimore City is raising every year is a really small percentage of the total need. But what the city has done is said, look, it's a down payment. We can start bonding against this. We can raise additional funds if we keep this funding stream in place. And Blue Water Baltimore has been extremely supportive of that. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of jurisdictions around us decided to not continue to uh, levy that that stormwater utility fee. And so it's really going to be interesting to see whether or not those jurisdictions can actually meet what's required of them under their stormwater permits, which are issued through MDE under authority from the Federal Clean Water Act. So it all comes back to, you know, what's happening at the federal level really kind of impacting at the very least um, – the spirit of what we know we need to be doing locally. Um, what do you feel when you see someone polluting in front of you, when you see someone littering? Because I go red and I try not to say anything. <laughs> but I, You know, it sort of depends on the mood that I'm in. <laughs> you know, there are definitely times where I look at kids and I think, oh, this is a teachable moment. You know, um, me too. And if I'm able to, you know, I might ask them a question and say, oh, hey, were you looking for the trash can? Um, Or I might just say, hey, you dropped something, you know. I've done that and it doesn't end well. (laughs) Yeah, it's a, uh, you know, in all honesty, if, you know, if I'm in a hurry or it's an adult throwing something out of a car, it's a little bit harder to really do anything other than go, oh, you know, um, but and just like a PSA for everyone, there are garbage cans all over the city. Yep. I happen to work for an organization that empties them. <laughs> just put your garbage there. We're really happy to throw it away for you. Yeah. You know, I love I love saying to folks, look, you wouldn't do that in your grandmother's house. You wouldn't, you know, finish a cupcake and throw the wrapper down in your grandmother's living room. So why is it okay for you to do that as you're walking along the sidewalk in your neighborhood? Mm-hmm. And I think, unfortunately, you know, there are a lot of folks, um, there, there are sort of two kinds of folks who litter. One is folks who just really don't have a clue. Uh, years ago, I was doing some work on the campus of the University of Maryland. I was walking with somebody who was college educated, and she had a solo cup. No, we were not drinking. Um, and when she was done, she she walked by one of the storm gutters, uh, the curb cut in the street, and she threw it into that curb cut. Oh, my God. And I stopped cold and I looked at her and I think she must have thought I was choking because she said, you know, what, what? And I said, do you do you know where that goes? And she stopped for a second because she'd never thought about it. And she was like, uh, no. And I said, well, that's out. That's going out to XYZ Creek, which is eventually going to hit the Chesapeake Bay. And she sort of looked at me and she stammered and she suddenly looked or felt, I guess, really guilty. But she really didn't know. She did not know that that wasn't a 
designed receptacle for trash. She had no idea that those those curb cuts don't go to some big filter. They don't go to Mr. Trash Wheel. They don't go to a trash can. Most folks don't know kind of about, you know, these these little escape valves that we've created all around our city. So that was a real teachable moment. But I think that there are so many folks out there who maybe grew up in, you know, more rural um, or suburban areas where they didn't have those features in the street. So they don't know where it goes. And then I think there's another group of folks who they feel like they've just got bigger fish to fry. Um, And these might be folks who are working really hard on a day-to-day basis, you know, to, to get into a good high school. Or they may be worried about um, finding a job. Or they may be worried about feeding their family. And dropping something on the sidewalk just really isn't up there in terms of what's most important to them. So they don't think about where it goes or where it collects or who isn't picking it up. Because unfortunately, they've got a lot of other things to worry about. And so in my view, I think the way that we go about sort of challenging both of those is just helping folks understand. Um, I think if if folks know better, they will think about it. You can hang on to that that wrapper. I'll I'll take a, you know, a piece of trash and I'll tuck it into my pocketbook until I get home or until I get into the office or until I pass a public trash can because I know that there isn't somebody sort of cleaning up behind me. But a lot of folks just don't necessarily understand that. Um, And so I think, you know, we've got a real teachable opportunity every every time it rains to say this is the collection of, you know, a million or more people in the the Baltimore region uh, not thinking Mm -hmm. about dropping their cigarette butt or dropping their, um, their plastic trash or throwing a cup out the window. This is what happens when more than a million people don't think collectively. Right. I have a friend, um, Jack Obermeyer, who you might know. He's at Monument. I do. I he's, love Jack. He's, oh, <laughs> I just adore Jack. If you're listening, I love if you. If you're listening, Jack, we love you. <laughs> and he committed to an hour a day for a month picking up garbage. Mm-hmm. And it was shocking. Because it's. I know he moved around a bit, but I think a lot of it was in his neighborhood. And he would spend an hour, and I think his husband was helping too. Yeah. And you know they would commit, and there would be bags of garbage. And then the next day they'd go out, and somehow there were more bags of garbage. I mean, to fill. Yeah. And it's crazy. I, I, I it was it was so eye opening to me. Well, and I think you're also getting at sort of the big the big one of the big issues, which is a group like Blue Water Baltimore or a neighborhood group or a park group. They could do a cleanup every single day of the year, and we would still see trash in the harbor after a big rainstorm. So, so the the real the real issue or the real solution isn't doing a million cleanups. It's really sort of using those opportunities as teachable moments. It's really about using those opportunities to gather together like-minded folks who might be really unhappy that every time they walk out their front door, there's more trash in the street, and trying to give them tools to do something about it. So perfect example. Um, Blue Water Baltimore has been working um, with Trash Free Maryland, which is a state-based organization. And they focus on policy related to reducing the sources of trash. We just recently collaborated with the Brewers Association of Maryland and eight of our fine local breweries, including Monument, including Union. I'm drinking an anthem right now. Um, And we did a big cleanup on a gray, cloudy Saturday morning. Because we thought, hey, this is a great opportunity to maybe tap into um, a a new set of folks who care about this stuff, but maybe weren't really thinking of themselves as environmentalists. Mm -hmm. And so the really great thing that the breweries did was they used their social media platforms. They put up signage in their tap rooms to get volunteers to sign up for this event and come out on a rainy Saturday morning to help pick up trash. 
and learn about some of the things that are going on to try to reduce trash in the first place. So it was a really successful event, and it was a great opportunity for us to engage with new folks, you know, not the usual suspects, um, to give them an idea of some of the things that are going on at both the city and the state level that they can get involved with. So one of the big issues, um, there's, you know, you mentioned trash, and, and um, over the summer, a lot of restaurants have been doing voluntary um, reductions in plastic straws. Right. So a lot of, um, a lot of restaurants have said, we're not going to give you a straw unless you ask for it. Um, and then you'll only get a paper straw or some alternative to this single-use plastic. Um, and we're seeing lots of those kinds of things kind of across the board. A lot of that came from efforts to outright ban or get rid of single-use convenience items. Um, for the past two years, we've tried at the state level to ban what's called expanded polystyrene. Most folks call it styrofoam. Technically, it's not. But, you know, those foam clamshell containers oh, that you get. awful. Yeah, you get your hamburger in or you get your sandwich in. Because those things do not degrade. And if they get dumped out of somebody's car window or they fall off the pile at the trash can, they basically break into millions of little pieces and they can be eaten by fish. They can basically bioaccumulate. Um, now, we don't know if they are potentially hazardous to our health. Um, but well, I feel like if you wouldn't cut into one and eat one normally, then perhaps you don't want to eat it through a fish either. Sure. Well, yeah. And I've got friends who are moms that are saying, you know, I don't want my kid potentially eating that. So um, we've been trying for the past couple of years to ban it statewide. Um, I couldn't be more thrilled to say that Baltimore and our relatively new city council uh, stepped up last year and banned these takeout containers from all city restaurants, um, you know, takeout places, uh, you name it. Okay. I am like such a tattletale at mm -hmm. heart. I know a couple of restaurants that are still giving those out. So, well, the good news is, well, good news, bad news. Um, they are given, all the uh, city restaurants are given 18 months to comply. Okay. So they don't technically um, have to stop using them until, I think it's fall of 2019. I will be watching. Yes. And that's exactly what you need to be doing because I think the environmental community, there was a, a huge group of student activists that really just, they let loose on, on our city council members and they talked about this being their future. And that was really compelling for our city council. So we had businesses signing letters saying, you know what, I already switched over and it hasn't impacted my costs. It's not the end of the world. There are alternatives out there. There are things that are actually recyclable, like, you know, light plastic or paper. And not to like count other people's money, but it, it I feel like the alternatives probably aren't that much more expensive. And They're if you could not. build it into the cost of the meal, I mean, if it's if we're all sharing like a cent or two more, that just, I don't know. Well, and, and that was one of the one of the biggest arguments we heard was, oh, my goodness, this is yet another cost that you are asking mostly small businesses to absorb who are already, you know, kind of right there on the margins. And let's be honest, you know, I enjoy takeout food as much as the next person. We've got some awesome restaurants in the city, and I don't like to cook. So I'm I'm giving my business to these folks. If if their business is going to live or die, basically on what we found was anywhere from zero to three cents differential between one of these foam packages and something that's made out of paper or plastic, something tells me that's not really the thing that's going to, you know, make them go under. But, you know, I get it. From the perspective of the business community, any level of uncertainty is frightening. So one of the things that we, um, we agreed to was a longer time frame for implementation so that if businesses, you know, had a stockpile of this stuff, they could use it and they didn't end up holding on to a bunch of it um, and that they could maybe work with um, within their business district or work with other 
other uh, small, you know, restaurants to bulk purchase. Um, you know, we're hearing anecdotally lots of really great stories about how folks have made this work. Um, school systems in Montgomery County or small businesses in the District of Columbia. So it's not that it can't work. It's just a matter of whether or not folks want to put a little bit of time and energy into getting rid of a really persistent, really visible source of trash um, in our waterways. And Mm -hmm. so gratefully, Baltimore said, yeah, we're going to do this. Um, and so now we're going to be going back next next January to the General Assembly and hopefully reintroducing the same or similar bill to try to get the ban statewide. Because ultimately, that's what we want. We don't want each county doing something different. That's not efficient. No. And it does give the business community probably a really good argument that, you know, they're being – they're being subjected to different regulations if they have a store in Baltimore City and one in Howard County. So we get that. We want to see a statewide ban because there are alternatives. And this one is almost a no-brainer, to be quite frank. Well, and buying in bulk with other restaurants, that's such a great idea. Yeah. You know, so like I said, we're seeing some really good, really innovative um, ideas come out of this. Um, and I don't really think that implementation is going to be that big of a challenge. Mm-hmm. That's my personal <laughs> thought on it. I don't own a business, but that's my personal philosophy. Yep. Um, so you were speaking about the breweries, and I know you have a promotion either going on or coming up with Monument. It's like this land, sea, and air, different kinds of beer. Is that right? Oh, yes. Yeah. So I got to say, um, I love Monument City Brewing, and that's, you know, I'm giving them some shameless promotion, but great local brewery. Um, they, you know, were very quick to engage with Blue Water Baltimore and Trash Free Maryland when the idea was brought to them that we could collaboratively work together to try to reduce, you know, dispose single use disposables, do this trash collection. Do cans? I mean, obviously, cans are single use, but because they are purely recyclable, right? They are recyclable, so okay. it's just a matter of folks actually putting them in the right receptacle. Right. Yeah. Okay. Most of our single-use plastics, things like straws or these, um, you know, styrofoam containers, they really aren't recyclable, right. primarily because of the way they get soiled with food. So they, they tend to not be recyclable. But you're cool with beer cans. Cool with okay. beer cans. I'm absolutely cool with beer okay. cans. Um, it would be even better if you used, you know, sort of a refillable growler or something like that. But we can right now we can do beer cans because they do get recycled more often than not. So anyway, back to Monument, my favorite local brewery. These guys really stepped up. And so one night I'm, I followed them on Facebook. I'm scrolling through, you know, my Facebook feed. And I read this great post from Monument City Brewing that they are doing a three-beer double IPA series starting in August. Another one coming out in September. Another one coming out in October. And that the proceeds from these beers were going to benefit Trash Free Maryland and Blue Water Baltimore and our efforts to help clean up our environment. You found this out on Facebook? I found this out on <laughs> Facebook. That's wonderful. Yeah. So immediately Monday morning, I shoot an email to one of the co-founders and I'm just like, this is awesome. This, I, this is so amazing. So Were they going to tell you? Or? <laughs> I, I don't know. But it was really great to see kind of firsthand a small, you know, local business sort of putting their 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 money where their mouth is. And so not just saying, hey, you know, we support, you know, a legislative effort and we'll kind of see how it goes, but really saying we want to help raise awareness. We want to use our social media platform. We want to talk with our customers about this issue. And so just uh, last Saturday, they released the third in the series um, they're all very tasty. They're very hoppy, um, but they're really good beers. And, you know, sometime later this fall, you know, we're going to see a monetary contribution um, made from the folks at Monument City from the sale of these beers. So, you know, I couldn't be happier about the partnership with Monument and the fact that they are really they're really driving it because they really believe in this, because they want to make Baltimore City a better place. Um, for them to do business, but also for them to live and raise their families. And and that's really what it's all about. So mm-hmm. those are the kinds of folks that we really want to be partnering with. 
Very cool. Yeah. So we usually wind down each podcast with uh, five questions. Okay. And for you, I'm wondering if you could make them like sustainably connected. I will do my best. You can do your best. And if you if you just have a favorite that you want to share, that's cool too. <laughs> um, so where is your favorite place to get a dinner? Or to, to get a dinner. Where's your favorite place to get dinner? Oh, that's tough. Um, Somewhere maybe they like recycle oyster shells or... No, you know what? I will say, um, so I moved up to the Laraville area a little more than a year and a half ago. And I love the small, local, community-based um, restaurants. So I will give a shout-out to um, Silver Queen Cafe and Hamilton Street Tavern. Those places, they're great. Um, and they really want to be a part of the community. And the food is really good. You know, but they're not part of a big sort of chain. I don't have to drive anywhere. I can walk. So that's probably my favorite place to eat is someplace I can walk to. Perfect. Um, uh, this might be the same answer, but favorite place to go on a date? Uh, let's see. Well, I've been married for six years as of last Friday. I was married six years as of last Saturday. There you go. You're October is a great time. Yeah, we're, we're the, the six. Okay. Oh, that's crazy. Um, Wait, where did you get married? We got married here in Baltimore at the um, the I guess the Carroll Mansion and the um, what used to be the the dinner club. It used to be the oh gosh, what do they call it now? It's like the 1840s ballroom. Yeah, it's the big building on President Street. Um, we had our reception on the second floor, which is not the big ballroom. My but friend it used got to married be, there six years ago also, right? A week before you. It used to be the City Life Museum. And that place is just amazing and it's beautiful. And, you know, I met my husband volunteering in Patterson Park. And so they've got this huge mural of the pagoda. So, yeah. So let's see. We actually went to um, – we went to a great restaurant on um, in Harbor East. First time we'd been there, um, Uzo Bay. Mm-hmm. Never been there before, but I think it's part of the Atlas Group. And when I figured that out, I felt really good about it because the Atlas Group had just sponsored um, an event at the Friends of Patterson Park the weekend before. So I really like um, supporting you know, companies, restaurants, businesses that give back to the community. Uh, so that was a really good dinner. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Um, continuing with this food theme, uh, favorite place to get a drink? <laughs> um, well, I do love Monument yes. and their tap room. Um, I will also say I, we work really close to our house in Remington. And so that is a great place to get a drink, sit on the, you know, the back or I guess the front porch and um, – you can have a meeting, you can, you know, people watch. So I do enjoy that. And they have those garbage cans where I feel so dumb because I stand for like five minutes thinking like, <laughs> is this fork biodegradable? Oh. Is this fork trash? Is this Absolutely. Fork- <laughs> That's another thing that I love about our house is they encourage folks to separate out their trash. Um, they provide, you know, ceramic plates and, um, you know, regular silverware for all of the food stalls. And so they're actually washing and reusing most of what folks are eating or drinking on instead of automatically offering, you know, a um, a, a single-use container. Now, you can take out food from our house, because I have, and all of their stalls use a paper-based um kind of clamshell or or, um, or a plastic that is recyclable, cleanable and recyclable. So they're already not using styrofoam. And I don't think you could look at our house and think that they're, you know, they're struggling for business. And so without even thinking about it, they are leading by doing. Mm-hmm. And it's been good for their business model. Mm-hmm. So... Um, yeah. Another shout out for our house. They just opened an event space in the old garage area. Nice. I went to, do you know Share Baby? It's this incredible no. program. Oh, they give out diapers and donation-based diapers and, and baby items oh, very cool. to families that, that can use them. Yeah. Um, and they had a, a gala there. The space is incredible. Very so, yeah, cool. Our house, totally wonderful. Yep. Yeah. Well, and I got to say, uh, a shout out to the, the folks that uh, that operate our house, um, Seawall Development. Um, just to be completely transparent, we actually rent a building from Seawall Development, but I was so thrilled to hear that they've come on board to 
redevelop Lexington Market. And I think that if it's even anything like our house, it's going to be great. Mm -hmm. And they're really focused on making something that is really compatible with the neighborhood and something that folks who are already living and working and um, can can benefit from. So I'm thrilled to see that. Uh, all right. So favorite place to be outside? Ooh, favorite place to be outside. I've got to say lately it's been Herring Run Park. So we live, my husband and I live very, very close to Herring Run Park. So we love walking our dogs, um, love just walking or running on the, the trails. Um Patterson Park is also a favorite, so I spent a lot of time earlier in my life doing everything from team sports to chasing my dogs around the park. Um, Yeah, you know, but I also love riding my bike around Baltimore City, and I think there's a lot of real gems uh, all over Baltimore City that, you know, you got to get out of your car to really uh, appreciate. So the Jones Falls Trail is a really amazing resource. Um, It's extension. Gosh, I don't even know how far up that's going now. But there's a lot of really great places you can ride your bike in this city, too. So I like being outside. Mm -hmm. And finally, favorite place to buy a gift? Ooh. A sustainable gift. Sustainable gift. That is really tough. Um, I tend to be very pragmatic in my gift giving. So I like to give, you know, gift cards or services or things like that. Um, I will say that lately, uh, Walther Gardens has been a good one. Walther Gardens. Walther Gardens. So they're, um, they're up Walther Avenue in sort of the greater Laraville Hamilton area. Um, great sort of seasonal outdoor space where you can get, you know, in the summer you can get herbs. In the fall you can pick up a pumpkin or some mums. But they have really um, cute, very reasonably priced sort of, you know, gift items that may range, you know, everywhere from, you know, some soap that smells really nice or, you know, I bought a card for a colleague that had a baby that was made out of paper that was infused with wildflower seeds. Um, you know, things like that that folks can actually really use. Um, so, yeah, so maybe Walther Gardens is my new sort of favorite for right now. <laughs> Great. We'll take yeah. it. Yeah. Well, Jen Ayosa. Did I say that right? Yeah, you did. Ayosa. I have a, I have a crazy last name, so I always want to ask. Yeah, <laughs> probably should have asked before the podcast started. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. If you try hard enough, I'm like, yeah, you got it. You're like you're, the French. Like if you try to speak French in France, they're like, Okay, okay. Yeah. all right. I'll, all give right. I'll give it to you. So, Jen Ayosa. Jen Ayosa, yep. Thank you so much for being on. Oh, my gosh. This was my pleasure. This was really fun. I can't believe an hour's already up. I guess it's an hour. Yeah. Wow. All right. Great. Yeah. Thanks. Oh, Jen Ayosa, thank you for trying so hard to help us save us from ourselves and for being on the podcast. To learn more about Blue Water Baltimore, visit bluewaterbaltimore.org. For past Hey Baltimore episodes and all the cool stuff happening downtown, go to our site, godowntownbaltimore.com. Hey Baltimore is produced by Mike Evitz and made possible by Downtown Partnership. Our theme music is Artificial Sin by Super City. And I'm your host, Megan Eisenach. If you want to reach out, email us at heybaltimore at dpob.org. And thanks for listening. <laughs>